Christine opens with its engine running, and that's perfect. It's the beginning of the movie, and it's a moment that has been with me since childhood. Revving an engine that's going to transport me back at a time where my world consisted of what horror film that I could watch next, what book I could read next, and what album did Kerrang! say was worth buying this week. Maybe how to best avoid being in the same room as my dad that night. Very simple things. Christine was a really early one for me. I've seen it so much. I've even watched that commentary with Keith Gordon and John Carpenter on my DVD a stack of times as well. So it's difficult to watch it objectively. That is a huge understatement, actually. It's impossible to do it. It's so steeped in nostalgia for me, but I tried my best and it still hit the top 10. It's Christine. Christine. I like that. What is it about that car, huh? Maybe it's just that for the first time in my life I found something that's uglier than me. Why do you keep butting into my life? Here's a letterbox synopsis for you. Geeky student Arnie Cunningham falls for Christine, a rusty 1958 Plymouth Fury, and becomes obsessed with restoring the classic automobile to her former glory. As the car changes, so does Arnie, whose newfound confidence turns to arrogance behind the wheel of his exotic beauty. Arnie's girlfriend Lee and best friend Dennis reach out to him, only to be met by a fury like no other and holy smokes people today having speaking to us about christine we've got director neil marshall the man responsible for bringing us the films dog soldiers the descent doomsday centurion hellboy the reckoning the lair and the upcoming giallo-esque compulsion not to mention his tv work on game of thrones etc 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 oh yeah it's that neil marshall he's a busy guy so i was very honored to speak to him about this one so here we go this is myself and neil we're chatting back in the latter half of november 2023 all about christine Neil, welcome to the podcast. Hello. 
<laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this one. I was so chuffed to see that you were posted about watching a couple of Stephen King films the other day and I had to get in touch with you because of that because with the horror directors that we look up to and that we watch all the time I love knowing that you're watching these I things knowing, maybe yeah. taking notes I've been taking notes all my life as far <laughs> as horror directors concerned of like you know not literally but certainly like storing little things away and remembering certain things seeing how the masters do it for sure this was the the stephen king thing that got me intrigued i'm doing this episode on stephen king i saw you were watching him and i thought right let's get involved thanks for coming on the one that you've gone with is christine and i'm so glad you did because like no one had said oh yeah i want to talk about christine it was all about these massive ones like the ones that have broken through to be like the best films of all time you've got shawshank you've got the shining things yeah. like that but um I see Christine as a bit of an undercard. Like I know that Stephen King himself said the film version of it was, um, I think, boring. Was his words boring? Yeah, I gather that he wasn't a big fan of it. But it, it, to me, it's it's that thing of the combination of Stephen King and John Carpenter was like kind of irresistible. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, having you know read Christine as a teenager and. When I saw the movie, I kind of thought, yeah, I remember th I remember that scene. I remember that scene. It's exactly how I imagined it to be. So, yeah, I, I don't know what, you know, what problem. But then, you know, Stephen King doesn't particularly like The Shining either. So, you know, but it's still a masterpiece. Yeah, what's his beef? Um, so <laughs> where do we begin with He's him? allowed to be picky. He can do whatever yeah. he likes. Uh, what's your history with him? Was it, uh, did it begin books for you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. First book I read was Night Shift. I loved the I loved the short stories, you know. Um, really connected with those, and then uh, I think Christine was the first of the of the big tomes, the the, the weighty tomes. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I I have read all of his books, that's for sure. I'm like, I don't know anybody who has read all of his books, but I guess somebody probably has because there's a lot of them, and they're <laughs> yeah, big. Right. And uh, if I spend all my time reading Stephen King books, I'd never have enough time to make movies. So. But yeah, I mean, certainly, like it was when I was a teenager, it was either Stephen King or James Herbert I was reading mostly. And at the time, I kind of thought, oh, well, James Herbert's like a British version of Stephen King. I mean, he's not quite in the same league, but uh, as a prolific horror horror writer in the UK, it's like okay, we've got to we got to protect our own a little bit here. And uh, a lot of Herbert's stuff has stuck with me as well. And I'm, I'd love to do a Herbert adaptation sometime, but it's difficult to get hold of the rights of things. Yeah. Do you ever dip into Sean Hudson? No. No, did go that far. <laughs> but no, I'm not up. To, I'm also not up to speed with like if there's any kind of more recent writers and things like that. I, I, I seem to rarely get the time to read anymore, or find or make the time to read. And when I do, it's usually like I. I I mainly read about like the making of movies and stuff like that. So yeah. I haven't read a horror novel in a long time. And I need to, I probably should, you know. Well, for, for me, Stephen King was like my introduction to so many things, like to real visceral, like horror that you would consider an 18, uh, to mm -hmm. sex even, to, to like marital relationships and the workings there. I only had my parents to look at and, you know, they would hide any, any drama from me. So yeah, it, it was interesting. He was my sort of first 
big eye opener to the world. Was that anything like that for you? Or were you like coming a bit of a later teen into these things rather than in your early teens? Uh, pretty later teen. I think I, I, a lot of the Stephen King stuff that I was reading was like hand me down from my sister who's three years older than me. And she was reading them first and like, and I would then I would get them after she she finished. Them, so I think one of the things that I was I, I distinctly remember from Christine was the very in-depth description of how to perform a Heimlich maneuver um, in the book. <laughs> <laughs> like thinking this is not only is it scary but it's educational as well, <laughs> and it's and it's stuck with me ever since. I've never, thankfully, you know, touch wood, I've not had the the need to use it on anybody, but it's always in the back of my mind of like. Christine taught me how to do a Heimlich maneuver. I love that. It's everything that you're going to get from it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the thing that stays. So with this one, my first watch of it, I remember buying uh, like a really early VHS. And this was before I'd actually read the book. Um, mm -hmm. So I came to this one film first and I remembered the music. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the music before we get into the film. And this goes for your films as well. Like how important is it? For, for you to have like that idea of the the songs that you want to include those needle drops is that an important thing or is it something that you think of as an afterthought no i mean i i think of the kind of music is in my head when i'm writing films usually i tend not to do an awful lot of needle drops i mean i think when when it comes to christine i think it's, it was an essential part of the fabric of the movie because of the radio and the car and the period of the car as well and and I think you know it's it's part of the book as well. It's just it's it's just part of that world. Um, the films that I've made have usually been more score led in the same way that I love John Carpenter's score for Christine. I think it's one of his unsung classics. I mean, I, lo I love all his scores, but I've listened to the Christine one quite a lot recently. As, as I just think it's a really really interesting haunting score, and that com and the combi combination of that. With the you know the, with the fifties songs in the movie is it it works brilliantly together. But I so I remember first time I saw it, I was too young to see it at the cinema when it came out. Um, so I saw it on VHS first, and then promptly bought the 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 record the the vinyl. Oh wow! Of the soundtrack, so I have the vinyl somewhere, and was just listening to that nonstop because I just it was it was really kind of an introduction to a lot of that fifties music. Um, for me and, and and you know bad to the bone and stuff like that it's just you know fantastic numbers listening to that quite a lot i think it had a couple of carpenters um tracks on it but not a lot it was mainly devoted to the songs um and then years later they really finally released the carpenter a score on cd so i managed to get that as well it's crazy that's no slouch of a soundtrack like the the bit where the attack starts happening around the petrol station and the lights flash yeah. flash on oh it gives you tingles it's so clever the way the music mingles with it i love it so much so yeah. good. 
Yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I just love the fact that the whole, the whole of those scenes is where the car just doesn't give a shit. It's just like I'm just going to drive into another car or smash into this or drive through a petrol. It's like I don't care. It was also the film that introduced me to a song which I was desperate to find. Um, I didn't know what it was. It ended up being the Rolling Stones' "Beast of Burden." ever since and like i remember that years because this was before i could just tap it into the internet of me like hunting this thing down what is that song and i would always go before they had shazam and you could yeah, just push be- button and find out yeah so annoying. but yeah i got there eventually but yeah i think you're right like it was my introduction as well to like 50s rock that wasn't elvis I had yeah. no idea about Little Richard or anything like that. So, yeah, what, as you say, is a very educational film. <laughs> it is. It's opened, it opened my eyes to a lot of different things, for sure. And 50s cars, you know. I mean, I wasn't that familiar with, with I certainly never heard of a Plymouth Fury before that movie came out. So, yeah. So let's talk about the actual film itself. If you're going to um, like pinpoint a few scenes that have stuck with you over the years, where would you begin? What is it that excites you about what coming back to this one on a rewatch? I love the the rebuilding, the car rebuilding itself. Yeah. Um, I just think that's just it's beautifully done. And it's and it's you watch it now and it's like it almost looks like CG before it's time because you're like, how did they do that? And once you know, once you read or seen the making of or whatever it is that describes how they did it, and it's you know, it's a simple reverse film, but the practical nature of how you know, it's it's all very well of just saying, oh, we we reversed the film, but what they were doing to the car was still pra- a, a really complicated practical effect, and and yeah. all the cables and hydraulics to make the car implode in order to reverse it, stuff like that is it's, it's so clever, and um. And it's it's just beautifully done, knowing that it is practical, knowing that it is, it's really there, it's really happening, it's just happening backwards at all. And and I just think it's yeah, it stands up to this day. I, I love it. I was trying to figure it out. I watched the commentary and finally got there because I've always known it was a reverse. But I was like, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this analytically, and I'm still like, well, okay, if you're reversing that, I get that, but how? how? Still how? And as you say, when you've figure it out or when you when they tell you it's like oh of course that's how it was done but you're right so much work so much planning so many storyboards went into each individual scene such yep. a ball ache <laughs> to get it just for, right for each version of the uh, you know the bumper collapsing and the you know all that kind of stuff the, the, the windows breaking and stuff like that as well it's like so clever so simple so, but so, it's just so clever and effective that's the thing it's effective when 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 you know when when he says show me and she just starts repairing herself and it's just oh, it's phenomenal yeah absolutely great. love it and all the kill scenes as well are great i love to see the bullies get there just desserts <laughs> oh the bullies 
Ooh, I forget his name, but he calls him Cuntingham. And I remember as a kid, that was the first time I heard that. Like, yeah. I was like, whoa, what was that? Yeah. Like, th- this sort of thing, like, honestly, such an education. But yeah, the they, they, of... they do on retrospect look kind of mature for high school students. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just in their 20s, it's like 30s and 40s, some of these guys. It's crazy. Well, it, it reminded me a bit of Greece of like, you know, George Travolta and that lot being high, high school students and thinking, God, kids were old in the 50s when they went to school. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe they just kept getting kept back. <laughs> maybe let's just say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The, my favourite line in the film is uh, Cunningham's mum when uh, they're playing the music too loud in the car and, and they, she says, that's noise pollution, what you're doing. And that stuck with me forever. I love that line. It's Noise pollution, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I, I absolutely love it. I quote it all the time for no reason. Like whenever something's too loud, it's noise pollution, what you're doing. Perfect. But uh, there's also there's little things that the neighbourhood that he lives in looks an awful lot like Haddonfield. And you're kind of like, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, is this, is this like in the same universe somehow? Like, that uh, that they just live around the corner from, from you know, Laurie. <laughs> I would love that. Like, you know, yeah, like how Stephen King has his own universe. That'd be Carpenter's little universe. I'd love. Yeah, because it's it's one of the few. It's like a King story. It doesn't take place in Castle Rock and Maine and that part of the world. It feels very much like it's he's taken King's story and put it in Carpenterville, which is like Haddonfield and that kind of vibe. But it's a nice combination. One of the things I wanted to ask you was about Harry Dean Stanton uh, as the investigator here. What do you think about his role? I always forget he's in it. Well, yeah, because he's not in it very much. But, I mean, a lot of the supporting characters in it, like, he's really interesting. Uh, Robert's Blossom as, as the um, as the old guy who sells him the car yes. with his kind of weird back brace on, and he's just, like, he's just decidedly creepy. I can't remember what the actor's name is who runs the who runs the, the, the mechanic's yard, you know, because um, that, that, that character and that place was just exactly as I imagined it reading the book. So, yeah, but, yeah, Harry Dean Stanton as well, because, I mean, I was just... At that point, my knowledge of Stanton was was like I'd seen him in Alien, obviously. Repo Man was that before? Was that before or I think around it, the same time? I maybe think after. It was, yeah, eighty four, I think maybe. So yeah, year after. So maybe I'd seen it Repo Man before I saw Christine and um, uh, Paris, Texas. It's kind of like oh yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, and then he shows up in this kind of fairly small role but he's he's just he's just good value i mean he's a quality actor so he's just you know he delivers the goods every time he does yeah i i, I the chap you were trying to think of his name is robert prosky who um yes. is the garage owner and yeah. yeah i do remember that from the book as well like he's really well written and yeah. like the, the little poker scene that they're having in the garage that he disturbs and everything like some of king's writing is so descriptive like it's I sometimes find when I watch one of his adaptations, it's so hard to muck up. And yet so many people do like, I, I don't know what it is, but it just seems like it's written as he's writing. It's for the well, screen. He, he, I mean, he almost gives you too. as a filmmaker, he kind of gives you too much. All the details that he has the time and the pages to go into that you simply couldn't, you couldn't match. It's like any filmmaker has to kind of, does, uh, you know, narrow it down as to what, what he's ultimately going to put on screen and what he's going to focus on. Because if you're trying to cover all the details, then you end up with a, you know, a 10-hour movie. 
and very slow movie as well. So it's 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 good to have both the book and the you know as a, a companion piece to have read the book to fill in the background details, the texture that's in the background of the film. There is a there's a story that I read in a magazine, and it was a piece that was written by J.J. Abrams that J.J. Abrams and I think it was Damon Lindelhoff went to visit Stephen King to interview him um, at his home, and they would do they were filming this interview, doing this interview for some time, and King said, "Let's let's have a break. Let's go to the movies." And they're like, uh, "Okay, let's go to the movies." He said, "There's this film I want to go and see." And uh, and I was reading this piece, and it, and it's, it describes how basically the three of them went to see The Descent in the cinema in Maine. And J.J. Abrams was writing about the fact that like King just kept on giggling and laughing at all the kills, and having and he just and he had such a great time with it. And yeah, anyway, I'd heard that like Stephen King really liked The Descent, so I was just like, that's just an amazing, yeah. <laughs> amazing little bit of fact factoid there. Wow. <laughs> I just like the idea of King sitting in this audience giggling and laughing every time there was like a really brutal death or whatever. I was just like, I love that image. <laughs> just to get any reaction out of him. He's such a curmudgeon these days. Like, well, yeah, but he, he likes to go to the movies still. He likes to go and see horror movies. Yeah, too right. And I love that it was the guys from Lost. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's like bizarre, but wonderful. On this recent rewatch that you did, did anything not work so well for you? Not that really, not that really jumps out. I mean, as I say, beyond the the the, the high school kids that don't look anything like high school kids. What? Um, no, I mean, I think you know, I still, I still enjoy it. It still stands up. I still, you know, the bits that I love, I still love. But I can't think there was anything that didn't work. I, I tend to agree. Like with Christine, you know what you're getting into. Uh, with the film it's a sentient car like you can't take it too seriously this is a like yeah. b, b movie but i don't know that it's a film movie. that i ever thought was scary like even when i first saw it, i don't know if it was it's you know it's considered a horror film but is it was it ever scary i don't know i don't i didn't i never thought it was scary i mean i like it i enjoy it i'm impressed by it i love the effects i love the sequences I like the story but it's not scary it's just, obviously it's a more serious version or it's a, just a better quality movie than that other sentient car movie the car which i also love for different reasons but it's you know that one's a bit more hammy but it's still it's of the the two great sentient car movies out there for sure <laughs> yes. and i think you know maybe we should have some more of them <laughs> oh yeah i would love that no i can't off the top of my head i can't but and there must be more uh, but i can't think um, really. well yeah, was that the Wraith or something? Is that was that a sentient car movie? Um, I mean, there's there's um, you know, Maximum Overdrive, but that's trucks, and <laughs> we don't talk about that one. Yeah, don't talk about <laughs> that. So I think there is a, a scary-ish scene, um, but it's the part of the the family relationship, and it's when he attacks his dad, and he gets his dad by the scruff of the neck and pushes him against the wall. That's For quite me, interesting. Oh, yeah, I, I was frightened by that as a kid because I was like, "Whoa!" That, you know, that seems pretty uh, shocking. His mum's the scariest thing, isn't it? <laughs> she is. She's terrifying. Hundred percent correct. Um, so I've got to ask you this: If you had carte blanche and just could choose anyone to adapt yourself, what one would you go for? Oh God, that is. Very, like, very tricky. I'm trying to think of which one, because the, the things that stick it in... Well, I, okay, so it would probably be one of the Backman books. And 
I think maybe you'd go for the long walk because that seems to be, you know, the the challenging one that's never quite yeah. been done yet. I always like Rage, but you'd never get away with doing that as a movie now. <laughs> it's like it's become so kind of prescient. It's 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 alarming. And oh, it's Running Man. I know. I think Edgar Wright's attached to do an adaptation of that. Wow. So I think maybe it's a long walk. I always liked the Backman books. Or uh, it's either that or one of the stories in Night Shift because I love all those short stories in Night Shift. And it's just trying to find the one which hasn't been done already because a a bunch of them have been adapted. But yeah, I'd I'd say the long walk. I would love to see your Tommy Knockers. Okay. I'd love that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God, there's so many to choose from, isn't there? Okay, well, I'm, I'm taking the long walk. I'll take that to the bank. Um, All right. Okay. We'll so before we go, um, I want to know what's next for you. Like, what have you got going on? Uh, what? When can we expect something new? Well, I've got two films that I, I shot in the past couple of years that are, that are still to come out. So uh, I shot a movie last summer, which is a, a gangster movie uh, um, called Duchess, which is going to be coming out early next year. And then I just did a, a a giallo slasher movie earlier in the year, which uh, I don't know when that's going to come out, but it's probably next year, end of next year sometime because we're still finishing it off. And in the meantime, I'm just you know because of the strike and everything has been on, it's been kind of devoted to um, planning new projects. So I'm I'm currently writing about three scripts, which of a mix of genres. I've got a horror script, I've got a sort of sci-fi action script, and I've got a I guess a drama is in there as well. So, yeah. And, and don't Trying forget the, the long walk as well now. Yes, we'll have to put that on the list now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Mr. King will, will <laughs> let me. Yeah. yeah. I cannot wait. To, any any information you can give about this Jalo one? Ah, uh, this is tickled me. What? Or how's this going to work out? Well, it started out that I, I kind of wanted to do um, a kind of erotic thriller like they had in the, you know, a fatal attraction, a basic instinct, that kind of thing. And then I ended up going to Malta to shoot it and got kind of swept up in, and we had a lot of Italian crew and things like that. And, but it also has this, it's a psychological thriller and it also has this slasher element to it. And uh, the more I kind of got into that world and I started watching loads of Giallo films as prep, I was just like, I want to you know shift this more toward the Giallo thing and and go down that road. So, you know, we've got the, we've got the classic kind of razor blade wielding mass black gloved, killer and stuff like that going on and some a couple of really really brutal deaths and yeah and splashing some blood around again it was great we're having a lot of fun with it i'm genuinely it's called compulsion oh compulsion yeah because i wanted i wanted to try and tap into it was like partly like hitchcock's suspicion and polanski's repulsion and got one of those kind of titles that was a one word title that just like was boom like vertigo or something like that it was just like compulsion so yeah, that's just called I am so excited to see this. Oh, my God. Oh, my word. Um, (laughs) Neil, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Neil Marshall there for chatting with me. What a nice guy. 
I love a bit of chatter. I love a bit of chinwag. I love a director. I love Neil Marshall. Thanks, Neil. Uh, what's next? Uh, well, what does King think about this film? And all I could find was a clip from a lecture that King gave in 1983. Uh, you can watch the whole thing. It's like 90 minutes long. It's on YouTube under the title Library Lowdown. Uh, I couldn't find him actually talking about Christine in particular, but he does mention John Carpenter here, which is cool. Have a listen. Then, about 25 years later, along comes John Carpenter and remakes the thing. Uh, a lot of the critics didn't care for the movie. I thought it was a marvelous remake myself, but what do I know? Anyway, times have changed. Uh, Richard Carlson's I Led Three Lives is no longer on the, on the tube. Um, people are not so concerned with a red under every bed as they are about other things. And one of the things, when you say to people, what are you afraid of? What scares you? That's something that people ask me. But if you say, what scares you to people? They'll list a number of things. One of the things that very obviously scares a lot of people is cancer. Um, we live in a society with an informational overload. Information comes in from everywhere. It pours in. And in the last two or three years, uh, cigarettes, no good for you. Uh, they're going to pollute your lungs. You get lung cancer, have heart attacks. Lung cancer is the thing that scares people, though. Don't want to drink too much coffee because you can get uh, stomach cancer, gallbladder cancer. Don't eat too much meat. Bowel cancer, uh-oh. <laughs> Don't breathe too much air because hydrocarbons, they do all sorts of things. We've got PVC, brain cancer, uh, the stuff that's in the animal feed now supposedly can give you cancer. There's just, cancer's everywhere. It's all around us. So in the late 70s and in the early 80s, we see a spate of what I think of as tumor movies <laughs> where there are things inside that come out. And they look real bad. I mean, they, they don't look like anything that you would ever have at your supper table, <laughs> these things. And of course, the one that everybody remembers was Alien, where um, there was a fellow who, and this happens, at, it really does happen at dinner. It's sort of the ultimate affront. And he begins to say, uh, I don't feel well, my stomach's upset, this and that and the other thing. And then this thing sort of rips its way out of it and go scurrying off. Um, and it it's, seems to me to be a very clear tumor imagery. And the same thing exists in um, uh, John Carpenter's version of The Thing, where, again, we're seeing things that are growing inside. Uh, a lot of David Cronenberg's work focuses on this idea of things that are growing inside you. Um, Cronenberg studied medicine, got a degree in medicine, Cancer is one of the things that he's frankly very worried about, and it shows in his work, where time and time again, people are actually incubating parasites inside. There's a movie called The Beast Within that has the same uh, uh, idea. Okay, so where can you find this film? Well, in the UK, it's available everywhere to stream, but there is a charge, unfortunately. And in the USA, I found it on something called Fandango. That's streaming for free. I'm not lying, it's called Fandango, honestly. Uh, podcasts, well, there is a fantastic episode of Blank Check with Griffin and David back in September 2021 that came out all about Christine. It's a one-stop shop for me. It's fantastic. And that's it, yeah. That was Christine. It's time 
for the second part of the also rans and that is the second part of the also rans it's also the very second part of those also rans and i know i know that you can't believe it either so for me all these are above average and they need to be added onto your watch lists at the very minimum so let's begin with the underseen 2014 creeper a good marriage Marjorie Duvall moved here after her divorce five years ago. Miss Duvall's body was discovered early this morning. Elements of the crime suggest that it was the work of the notorious serial killer who calls himself Beatty. You okay? Yes. You're so lucky. I don't know how you do it, and neither do I. This is a lovely home. What may I do for you, Detective Ramsey? You just had to look, didn't you? Darcy! Okay, A Good Marriage, it's a King adaptation that sort of gained a fair few negative reviews. And to be honest, I do completely get that. This wife finds out her husband is a serial killer lark. It is slow as all fuckery. And then the dream scares, they're just bullshit as well. But as with a lot of King adaptations, this is like comfort food for me. And I want more of it. I found myself really wrapped up in the story and Joan Allen's. She has this understated performance in this that it, it's just intriguing. But I do feel a little bit unsatisfied afterwards. So maybe that's why the negative reviews came about. Honestly, I do get those criticisms. Tales from the Dark Side, though, from 1990, betters it. Stephen King's segment about the cat is the worst one on here, which is why this is so low. And that was actually meant for Creepshow 2. But the wraparound and the final chapter about the painter making a deal with the devil, that's really cool. I really do recommend that. But even better than that, well, in 1985, Gary Busey starred in Silver Bullet. And this is what the synopsis says about that one. The small city of Tarkas Mill is startled by a series of sadistic murders. The population fears that this is the work of a maniac. During a search, a mysterious hairy creature is observed. The strange appearance is noticed once a month. People lock themselves up at night, but there is a boy who's still outside. He is preparing the barbecue. So following that at my number 33 position it's the tv movie adaptation from 2002 it's carrie and this is the thing the casting on this is phenomenal and you know what carrie is one of the best horror stories ever told this thing was obviously made for tv and maybe it is too messy around the edges to hold a light to that 70s masterpiece but i had a good time with it it's a proper and bloody good time as well and we hit 2019 next with It Chapter 2. 
easily the worst, the messiest, the most overblown of the two films that came out in the last decade. Rewatching it now, though, it's almost excruciating. Uh, and yeah, it does contain a few classic set pieces that really stuck with me and why I've put it so high on this list. But better than that, probably by two miles, is a Netflix original called In the Tall Grass, also from 2019. Uh, here's that letterbox synopsis for it. After hearing a child screaming for help from the green depths of a vast field of tall grass, Becky, a pregnant woman, and Cal, her brother, park their car near a mysterious abandoned church and recklessly enter the field. It's not particularly reckless at the time. Discovering that they are not alone and because of some reason they're unable to escape a completely inextricable vegetable labyrinth. Now, this one is as messy as that synopsis was, but the setup is so intriguing, I was completely sold, and I wasn't going anywhere during that 100 minutes running time. Saying all that, I think it's about time for a guest, I reckon, and I am delighted to invite back onto the show one James Chapman. Now, for those that are on Patreon, if you already know this, then that's awesome. But I recently revealed my uh, favourite albums of 2023, and James's AKA Maps was my very top pick from all the hundreds of albums that I'd heard. What a mad good record that is. Uh, Counter Melodies is what it's called. It is boom. So, what film are we chatting about? Well, it is 1408, directed by Michael Haftrom. So let's do this. Uh, synopsis, trailer, chat, nice. A man who specialises in debunking paranormal occurrences checks into the fabled room 1408 in the Dolphin Hotel. Soon after settling in, he confronts genuine terror. Nothing would make me happier than to experience a paranormal event. There is a place. There have been 56 deaths in 1408. 56. Where the world of the living, it's an evil world, crosses over. Ghoulies and ghosties don't exist. Into the world of the dead. I'm just hallucinating. Who is that? Based on the terrifying story by Stephen King. They're in 1408. The room's empty. 1408. This film is not yet rated. Before we start into this whole Stephen Thing, uh, Stephen Thing King. Stephen Thing. Stephen Thinking. I just want to say, uh, welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I've done a special show. No one's said it. it's like my favourite albums of the year. You've come top. Like, hey! No. You are joking me. No way am I joking you. It's the one oh I've listened God. to since the day it come out. Constantly on rotation. Oh, thanks so much, Paul. That's amazing. Hey, I love oh. it. Absolutely love oh. it. Thank you. <sighs> There we go. I've never been able to, to tell anyone that. <laughs> I've never I've never been top of any list, so there we go. <laughs> I'm speechless, thank you. <laughs> well, oh. it's a bad time to be speechless because um yeah, we're pull myself die. together. Yeah, here we go. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> steady those nerves. Right, okay. Yeah, this is a Stephen King special and a film that I thought no one would go for is this one, 1408, <laughs> and of course you've gone for it. Uh, I love your choices because they're the ones that, like, 
you wish people would talk about them but they tend to be the ones that are just on that side periphery of the vision and no one really goes into it what made you pick this one i think that was the reason i mean obviously there's there's plenty other bigger and better films of his you know but i think this is this is one that not many pe- people have seen and i think it's a great film um i think it's yeah i i, I and like you say i think it's good to kind of draw people's attention to things rather than just talking about the same films over and over so yeah that, that, was, that was my choice that was my reason yeah <laughs> that's my choice and i'm sticking with it <laughs> <laughs> so obviously stephen king is horror like royalty i don't think in this day and age there isn't a, a name like vincent price or peter cushing whatever christopher lee anymore but there is Stephen King there is still that Mm. brand where people will go to the cinema and see whatever just because that name's behind it I love that there is someone like that still within horror but what's your history with Stephen King like where did you first get your introduction to him and is he someone that you actually still keep in track with yeah I mean I think because I you know I grew up in the 80s so that was like the, the peak peak King uh time like i think i remember i remember going into video shops and just seeing the when i was a bit too young to watch them just seeing the i think the first one i saw was the the, the clown the, from it oh it yeah and it was you know it was when it was, it was all over like hardback books as well and p- people were people were a bit older than me were reading you know the latest Stephen yep. King and but so I think it was just seeing the pictures and, and seeing like Pet Cemetery and just thinking what's what's this you know it's, it looks a bit scary and kind of not fully but just being aware of of his name because it was always in that those bold type at the top of everything that ever came out of his so it was even even before I'd seen anything of his he was already in my consciousness, I guess. So, yeah. And then later on, I think, you know, I can't, I was trying to think what the first one I ever saw was. I can't even remember. Um, and also you just forget how many films there are of his and how many, like, and then there's the TV stuff as well, you know, TV shows and it's just, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I can't, I, I think that was, that was it really. Um, and just kind of, yeah, just just being aware from a young age and then gradually being sucked in. I think Misery was it was a bit later, wasn't it? But I remember that there was like some Oscar yeah, stuff I think around that as well. Was it uh, maybe nineteen ninety? Right, like, yeah, not too much later. So I, yeah, I remember that being quite a, quite a big thing. But yeah, even that I didn't see that until later. I, you know, I, I kind of went back and watched things that other people had seen years ago. Yeah, he's, he's but like you say, he's just, um, he is the, the name when you, when people think of horror. But just like full disclosure, I've never read one of his books. Wow. <laughs> I've, only, <laughs> Love I've it. only ever seen the movies. And feel free to banish me from the podcast. I, I love that. So, what a unique. But this is a movie podcast. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, who wants to read books anyway? Who reads books? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm much, I'm much more into kind of the older, old school kind of gothic 
you know, Edgar Allan Poe and all that jazz. And so, um, but even that, you know, I kind of, I like, I prefer audio books. Yeah, well, <laughs> Just... I, I I went to find this one uh, and like, I was like, oh. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to audio book it. So I mm. did uh, just for this conversation, just to see if there was differences and things like that. And there were a few, uh, but I think uh, at that period, that late eighties period, that's when I started to buy his books. And I remember you couldn't even buy sweets and go to a news agent without those novels just being there. Like they mm. were everywhere. You couldn't avoid Stephen King's name. There's no way. Mm. So yeah, I get it. Like it's everywhere. Yeah, no, and, and I think especially that time as well was kind of, you know, the, the 80s was quite kind of like the horror. It just was everywhere, really, wasn't it? The kind of video nasties and all that stuff was getting talked about. And um, But, yeah, for, for for me, it's always been the movies that I've I've seen. And uh, even this, you know, I feel bad, but I I kind of, I did look up the the difference between this, this film and the short story. Oh, it yeah. It sounds very different. It sounds very different. So we'll, I'm we'll sorry get going to it. on the movie. Yeah. yeah, man, we'll get to it because like it will give away like severe spoiler. So uh, listen for about, I wouldn't know, five minutes. <laughs> and after that, we're going to spoil it. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. So I'm going to give the synopsis uh, of this one, 1408. And then I'm going to ask how you sort of like came across it, maybe. So it's, it's a man who specializes in debunking paranormal occurrences. He checks into the fabled room 1408 in the Dolphin Hotel. Soon after settling in, he confronts genuine terror. And a bit of a spoiler is the tagline that was on all the posters. And it said really bold, like the only demons in room 1408 are those within you. So there we go. Oh, Mm. that is a bit of a spoiler. But uh, yeah, in a way, yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. It's, like, it's enough. That would be enough to get me interested uh, and wanting to watch it. And I know when this came out on, I think it was a, I think it was DVD. It definitely wasn't a VHS. So it was definitely mm. DVD. I rented this on day one. I remember like that the full, uh, the full row at the Blockbuster or wherever it was that I was going to. I think it must have been Blockbuster, North Down Road, big up. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I just remember the top row was. Like all 1408, and I was like, oh, right, okay. So I thought this was going to be this huge thing. And of course, mm. like history has told us it's not. Um, when did you first find out about this one or first see it? Can you remember at all? I, I think, I think it was, um, I just on demand. Like, I, I think I watched it with my dad, like years wow. ago when it first came out. Like, and I hadn't heard, I hadn't really heard much about it either. Um, but no, I've, I've, I think I've, I've seen it about four times since then, just like over the years. Yeah, like I, I it's weird how it it, it, it didn't become like a, a bigger film, but it is quite. I don't know. It's it's it, it, it's not like out and out horror. In it's it's it's, it's a lot more psychological, and it's sure. you know most of it's set in this one location. So I guess that you know makes people maybe think it's kind of a smaller type of affair but i i think it's a brilliant film it's um you know it has it has some flaws but, which we'll probably get into but um not yeah. not here no we'll, oh yeah we will yeah we will okay john cusack right so you mentioned edgar Allan poe uh he was in the raven and i'm scared to watch that because the reviews were bad did you see it at all 
I did, yeah. I'd, I'd completely forgot that as well. Yeah, no, I saw that at the cinema. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't, no, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was interesting kind of what they tried to do. I can't remember much about it, but it was kind of turned him into a bit of a, a swashbuckling hero <laughs> to some degree. Um, and, but I think <laughs> a lot of it was biographical, but a lot of it wasn't. Um, so... Yeah, it's a weird film. God, I, um, I've got to, I've got to tick it off. Like I have yeah, to watch I would. it. Yeah, I didn't think, I didn't, I don't think it was like, you know, I wouldn't tell you not to watch it. I'm going to be yeah. thinking of you, like watching <laughs> it. You now, I'm going to be like, oh, swear it at me. Like, yeah. The other one that he was in, uh, Mr. Cusack, is also this is horror. Uh, was with Samuel Jackson as well, and it was Cell, which was another mm. Stephen King one. Did you see yeah, that? I did. Yeah, I've mostly like on kind of late at night on the horror channel. Got um, it. Which is which is now called Legend, which I watch quite a lot. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't good. I think that like the opening is pretty good. Like when yeah, it start yeah, it when it's kind of they start getting the the signal and stuff, but then they get, it kind of goes a bit <laughs> weird after that, and it didn't didn't really didn't really go. Where well, it didn't go where I was expecting, but it wasn't kind of where I wanted it to either. No, so. <laughs> I have to agree. Like it's what I read the book on the 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 again. Like as soon as it's out, I bought the book. Like I was still like, oh man, I just love Stephen King. Like got got mm. another one, and it's all about tech. So like I'm like, mm. yeah, lovely. I'm gonna I'll get into this. And the book was great, but like as the cliche goes, the ending was a bit crap. But I was like, right, they're making this into a film. Who's in it? And I was so genuinely excited, like Sam Jackson mm. and Cusack. Like, this is going to be so good. And it, yeah, and like you say, it was it was like, oh man, the intro. You're like, oh, okay, I'm on board. I yeah, think I'm yeah. on board. Uh, yeah. And yeah, sort of fizzle fuzzles, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, I mean, Cusack has made he's made as many kind of not great films as great ones i think over the years i think it i mean i love him i think he's just got that effortless kind of hollywood cool about him i i just love his kind of yeah he's got that star quality um i think that's what he brings to this film is that kind of hollywoodness which is you know i'm 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 just on board with him like from the beginning when he's kind of you know you just introduced to him as a cynical Jade is asshole. (laughs) Yeah, I think I I think he he carries this film. I think because it's just him for most of it. Yeah, Um, yeah. I I I like to think of this as like I loved him in High Fidelity. Being a music nerd, Mm. like it must be something that you've seen like several times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But I sort of like think of this as like oh, this is the same sort of character. Maybe many years later or whatever. (laughs) Like even more annoyed at the world. You know, if it, I just feel like he's playing that same guy. And when he does, like you say, I don't know, I just think he's incredible in it. I think he's incredible in this. Yeah, and he also, but you 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 sympathise with him as well. It's just it's kind of like a hard tightrope to kind of get right. In that he is he is an asshole, but when you the more you learn about him, and there's scenes in this film that I genuinely teared up towards the end. He he's yeah, you do feel for him. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think he's great. 
I'm going to ask you this. So a couple of reviews, I stopped reading them after two because both of them mentioned the same thing. And I was like, are they copying each other? Uh, But regardless, they said that his performance is very Nicolas Cage-esque. Can you see that? I mean, I I, I think I probably said the same review (laughs) because I'd seen that as well. And I mean, there's moments in it where he kind of just does lose control and goes completely what you might say over the top, but I think, I, I think it's, it isn't as wild. And, and I think Nicholas, I don't think Nicholas Cage would have done as good a job with this film because Cage is brilliant at just being nuts. But I think what Cusack brings is that kind of pathos and, and sadness to his character. But yeah, I, I mean, I guess when, when any actor kind of, goes a bit crazy people like to say oh he's a bit Nicolas Cage X <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think as I say I think Cusack's just got the balance completely right like mm. even when he's at his most raving and most crazed in this there is that because he's had that backstory and we already know about like the wife and the child and all that it does it it reaches you in a, in a different way as you would mm. expect, say, for even when like Nicolas Cage in Mandy is lost Mandy and he goes on that bender in the bathroom. With Cusack, there is that, it just, as you say, it can make you well up, whereas you're not going to well mm. up with that Nicolas Cage scene. You're going to be rubbing your hands together going, go on. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, very different. And I think as well, the moments where he does lose it, there's a reason for it. I mean, the, the moment I'm thinking of, um, which I won't say when it is and why or what happened, because we're not doing that just yet. But there's a reason for it, and I I would probably react the same way. Because well, um, I don't know if you know the bit I mean, but well, um, let's do it. Let's go into spoilers now. So, like, just so you know, yay. flip forward or not, but watch, watch or whatever. Here we go. Right. So, I want to know like some of your favourite moments, and like, let's go into that bit. I think I know what you're talking about, but let's let's get there. I love the setup. I think that it's brilliant the kind of way he's introduced um, in the, the the bookstore reading at the beginning, where he's just <laughs> he's just he's just so jaded and, and doesn't want to be there. And um, yeah, I, I think that scenes like that really build his character. And also when he goes the before that, when he goes to stay at the the old couple's hotel, and they're all telling him how haunted it is and he's just like just give me the key let's get this over with (laughs) um yeah so i think the setup's brilliant what i love as well is the him and sam jackson the scene in the hotel when there's like that duel between them of yeah he's like just don't don't it's an evil effing room (laughs) yeah such a line isn't it so good Um, uh, yeah what's the other line it's um I don't want you to check into 1408 because I don't want to clean up the mess. That's a brilliant lie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and that's quite a long scene. And I think you see a lot of, you know, see Cusack's just stubbornness, but also you, you get a sense of just how evil this room is, you know, and, and it's kind of building it up to what is, what is going to happen in this room. Like that's, and that's probably the longest that Sam Jackson is in the film, weirdly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love that, and I think there's there's moments as well where they use the the fact that it is just him on his own, 
like the dictaphone that's a good device because he's he's kind of speaking into he's we're hearing his thoughts because yep. he's speaking into this dictaphone otherwise you you just get some kind of internal it'd be a weird moment on here it would <laughs> <laughs> be a very like there wouldn't be a lot of talking in the film it would just be him walking around doing stuff in a room <laughs> which wouldn't be so good so i think that was a clever device but yeah i love the you know the just the way it builds the, the clock radio the way it kind of comes on of its own carpenters record. come on it, you are it's the carpenters just it is yeah evil love carpenters it. um <laughs> yeah and and it's kind of like you know i went to one of these um haunted house things over halloween oh wow you know when you walk through and the yeah. people jump out of you and this is a bit like that it's kind of just it, it it's got different kind of um it, it's just using one location and thinking like well, how can we up the ante each time and like how can we you know using a fax machine to like fax his daughter's dress you know it's, it's just interesting things like that and yeah i, I thought that, that 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 was well done kind of the use of one location and even like the way it towards the end where it goes the temperature goes ice cold and it's but it's still in the room it's just cool like i think it's just clever the bit i was if we are we into we're into yeah we're into spoilers spoilers. yeah so i thought the bit i love is where he thinks he's out of the room and there's this long extended goes on for quite a while yeah it um, does that's what makes it more evil is that (laughs) the room is just so evil it makes him believe that he's out and he's 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 reconciling reconciling with his wife he even i don't know how long he's out for but he manages to write a whole book in the space of like because <laughs> it, it just shows him he's got this manuscript so he must have been out for quite a while um and he like and he goes to the post office to mail this book and then the post office gradually he realizes that there's people in there are actually people that he's seen in the room and the, the characters and stuff and um they they all demolish the post office and it you realize he's actually back in the room so yeah i thought i thought that was so good 100 percent. like i'm i love i love it i could listen to you all day um and it's gonna... evil it's evil just the, the you know it's stringing him along fucking room yes. making him thought think he's written a book and then <laughs> and it's one of his best just find it out of him <laughs> I want to go back on a few things you said. So first of all, like that that book signing thing in my band, we got offered once uh, a record store signing. There was no way I was going to do that. Like I can't. I, the, the dread of no one turning up and being a spinal tap moment. I've got to ask you: Have you ever had that? Have you ever had that where <laughs> that you've got to go and sign some stuff? Um, I've, I've, yeah, I must have done in, in the in the distant past. I've done, I've done kind of get into rough know. trade and sign your album, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. No, I mean, that's become more of a thing like in more recently. Yeah. A lot of people do that now, but no, I, I, I've done kind of promo things, but I don't think I've done actual kind of just going to sign because yeah, you would, you'd have that fear. You just have oh. to make sure just get a few mates to <laughs> come down and Please hang come around. Along. Yeah. <laughs> But I think the difference is like you, with those, you can kind of just hang about and 
nobody knows if no one turns up but if with a a book signing you're kind of you've got all the chairs out in front of the the desk and it's pretty obvious if they're empty um yeah. so. i've been to a convention before in london like a, a, a sort of comic-con type thing and there was a couple of tables of actors that were really sort of sort of just bit actors or whatever but they were always empty and i just felt so bad for mm. those actors like that they've come there that day they've been paid so like they're okay they're going to leave with the money in their pocket but at the same time they've not got anyone coming to see them whereas the desk down the down the mm. back with the, all the doctor who stars or whatever was like full the whole time it's like wow i feel so awful for it so yeah I, it's just a bit of dread in me that mm. i couldn't take that risk ever so big up john cusack well done <laughs> um <laughs> what else have i written down here there's so many good bits yeah carpenter's music we've only just begun i love that song i was so glad that that was the one so this is the bit that i find so cruel especially on a rewatch is when the thermostat guy comes along he won't go in the room right because i'm not going in that room and then he just says tap on it and it'll work brilliant taps on it it works he goes turns around the guy's gone he gets out of the room at that point to look for him. And you just go, stay out of the room. Stay oh, out yeah. of the room. And yeah, he goes no. straight back in. It crushes me. It crushes me. I hadn't even realised. Yeah. I felt more, I felt worse because he wants to give the guy a tip. And he's like, oh, I'll give you a tip when the guy's gone. And he's like, oh, all right. <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's just um, rude is what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just... Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't actually, because at that point he's he doesn't really think it's evil at all, does he? He's kind yeah, of. He's, he's, it's later on that the key snaps and he's stuck. Forever. Well, I, I remember my first watch of it, and because uh, I've only seen it twice, uh, but my first watch, I was thinking, well, obviously Samuel Jackson's drugged him, like when he was drinking, and mm. then they address that in the film. So, mm. like, as soon as they address it, you go, oh, no, it wasn't that. What is it? Is it a spooky room? Is that what happened? And mm. um, clearly, yeah, that's what it was. But I love the way they answer. Like, they think of what you're thinking and they answer mm. it already in there. So that's cool. My issue with the film, we'll, we'll get to it. So, like, for anything that doesn't work, like, after reading the book uh, or listening to the book, should I say, I don't want to, don't want to make myself out to be a liar. Um, I, there is no intro, so there's no backstory. So he's not got a wife, kid. It's just straight into Samuel L. Jackson's office. Uh, mm. So that that's what you get with the book. So you haven't got that emotional stuff already. So I think the film works that way, that it's mm. like giving you a bit of backstory. And normally when they do that uh, with films like from a book, it doesn't work, but it really does here. It really makes you bond with him and I, really enjoyed that but the ending is i think a lot better so the room itself in the book is like quite psychedelic like lsd trippy mm. um so he's not sure again if he's been drugged or whatever but that's what it sort of feels like but he gets himself out of the room he doesn't die at the end he sets his shirt on fire so we won't let the room win so his lovely hawaiian shirt his lucky shirt he sets mm -hmm. it on fire and the room pretty much just kicks him out. How dare right. you? How dare yeah. you kill yourself? I'm, that's my job sort of thing. And he escapes that way. And I just think oh, I quite like that because I don't want him to be dead. Like We've established this lovely 
background and it's gone all like the mist it's given us a really downbeat <laughs> ending now and I'm like, oh, why have you done that um so but that's really the only hole that i can pick from it is that i just prefer what stephen king wrote the in the version you watched does he die at the end yeah well that's 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 a Whoa! different ending yeah i was just about to say there's about four different endings to this film Oh my word! Okay, what what ending is happening in the one you've seen? So in in the one I've seen, which is the one I've I think I've always seen, is that he he does that he to beat the room he sets fire to the room. The room still has has tricked his wife into coming, like to kind of to get her there. Um, but by the time she gets there, the the fire's kind of raging, and and he's like crawling around the floor. And then, but the firemen get him out. And then, what happens after that? The yeah, and then the final scene is him and his wife back home, and he gets a dictaphone out that he's found from this the burning kind of rubble, and they hear his daughter's voice, and it kind of ends. His wife kind of is like just in shock, and you realise that it all happened. So yeah, that's that is, and I think that's that's. That's the ending I've always seen. So I don't know. The one you've seen, I think I, I looked this up as well. I think I it, there's one where he, it goes he comes to the funeral as, a, a as ghost. well. Yeah, so he comes back as a ghost at the end in this one in the room. He's stuck in the room forever. And in the one you've seen, is 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 does it show his funeral and Sam Jackson yeah. goes? Yeah. yeah, that's that. I I saw that ending on YouTube. <laughs> I can't believe it. I, I think, how did I watch this one? I think I watched it on Tubi, I think. Wow. Oh, wow. So there's different, I assume there That's was just cruel. like, yeah. So what happened was the, the, the version that you saw, I think they, they changed because in America, the test audiences didn't like it. Just like me. Um, Cause he dies. Yeah. Yeah. So they changed it to the one that I've seen. So I don't know. It must still be knocking about, like the version, the the cruel version. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so, so good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad the the test audience score for yeah, once. No, I that's normally amazing. hate that when they change it because of that. So that so in the in the book he gets out as well. Then I yeah, that but what you say? Yeah. his Hawaiian shirt that he wears it's like his lucky shirt, and right. like he's got one match left, and like he sets fire to his shirt. Um, to try and you know, like to to end himself, just to burn himself to death, sort of mm. thing. And the room's like disgusted with it, and lets him. He tries the door, and it opens, and he runs out. And then someone at the end of the corridor sees him uh, as he's putting the flames out on him. The the guy that saves him is a businessman, and he looks in the room, and it seems all inviting. So he starts oh. to go in, and John Cusack goes no, or oh uh, wow, yeah. So yeah, that's how that one goes. Ah. Holy moly! Yeah, there it's we crazy, go. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's mad that we watched. They had two different endings. And my my thing that I the one thing I didn't like was the ending, and they fixed it. <laughs> fixed it just for you. <laughs> ten out of ten. Now, forget yeah, the shining. I always thought the ending was a bit odd, like the one that I've seen. But it, it's it, I don't know. Like I think, and also I think the it's weird because. It makes more sense that they change the end because because Samuel L. Jackson's hardly in the film. Like he's only he's in at the beginning and he kind of comes in and out. But with your ending and the one that I found on YouTube, 
he has that whole scene at the end as well when he goes to the funeral, doesn't he? Yeah. So they must have cut all that out. Um, Mad. For the, yeah. So there you go. Uh, you know, I've got to hit up YouTube now. Uh, I've got to say, <laughs> what, what the bloody hell? Another ending. Okay. I didn't know that at all, man. I should do more research. That's my issue. <laughs> I get well, no, no, no. I think, um, I don't know how I found out. I think it was probably when I was kind of watching it again for this. Um, because I went on YouTube where people were saying, oh, I prefer the other ending. I was like, oh, other ending. Um, <laughs> so then I found, but apparently there's about, th- well, they say four, but I think there's three you can find. I don't know. Yeah. This yeah. is an Arrow box set. Come on, Arrow, <laughs> sort it out. <laughs> Just um, the endings. Yeah. I want to watch it at the work print. Wow. Okay. Um. Uh, okay. Let's get to the end. But this is important. And I don't know if you've read this question. Hopefully you did. Not even sure if I sent it. Um, what would you pair with 1408? So what other film do you think would go nicely with this? I think, so like, because it's kind of like mid-2000s, uh, Kusaki psychological thriller i'm gonna go with identity which is like a, a a peak cusack um early 2000s I, i'm gonna call it horror just for the benefits of this thank you because i think i think i think it kind of is horror although it's more like psychological thriller they called it a psychological thriller when yeah, it came out but it's quite um there's elements of definitely slasher that's kind of like the the setup yeah um, right. But yeah, I think they they make a nice pair because it's like, you know, Cusack Cusack centric hotel motel theme. You know, it's like uh, it's a nice. <laughs> I mean, I could you know you could choose the Shining or something. Well, what was well, yours? Mine was the Shining. Oh, and the reason <laughs> that's I, amazing. I was... I, my my other choice was the Shining. Yeah, it's because I think the Shining's the huge scale version of this, whereas this is mm. really a small thing you're in one room and it's like all within in your mind but you're really focused on that whereas the, the shining is just this very same film really but mm. huge huge production huge mind you know and that that's the only thing i could come up with and as soon as i did I thought i don't want to go anywhere else even though it's like pretty obvious but yeah your choice is way better way better well- it's another film that, like Identity, is another one of those films that I love. Um, I've seen it so many times over the years, and again, it's not one that many people have seen. I mean, it's it's got its elements of, you know, hamminess, but then, you know, I think that's quite endearing. Sometimes you want a bit of campy, campy thriller. <laughs> I watched it for the first time a couple of years back um, for this podcast, and mm. I thought it was one thing. And then it really wasn't that one thing. And I was mm. blown away by it. Twists mm. and turns are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I saw that at the cinema as well. <laughs> I see a lot of these films at the cinema. Like, just, uh, yeah, show my age, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the one that said I was at Reading 92. You're all right. Don't you yeah, worry. Yeah, no, that's, um, I'm not that... Well, I, I, we don't I talk ages, but <laughs> you know, I mean, I grew, I grew up in the eighties. That's all I'll say. Yeah, oh, so, that's fair. Um, that's fair. <laughs> um, all right, James, I'm going to go and paint some more floorboards, or whatever it is I'm doing. 
I'm going to tend to my tomato plants. Hey, hey, number one album of the year. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, man. No, I, I, that, that is that is blowing me away. I'm just, uh, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, you're a good man. thanks to that rather cool specimen of a human being, James Chapman, a.k.a. Maps, for coming on here to chat about Stephen King with me. But we've got to move on. We can't just linger. We can't stop there. So, for me, better than even that, it's 1992 Sleepwalkers. Now, I think this must be Mick Garris's most pervy film. Uh, all the incest and that rubbing joke was very sexually charged. It just fizzles off of the screen. It's also cocaine-era Stephen King, but I think that you're either going to love this batship-shape-shifting nutballer, or you're just going to hate the thing. Also, if you don't like cats, well, you may even hate it more. But it's far too light compared to this next one. Yeah, following that, I've placed 1922. And that came out on Netflix Direct, I think it was, in 2017. It's a truly, truly bleak study on guilt that sort of cooks away on a low heat for the majority of its running time with a few noticeable horrific moments that sort of pull this away from being just a depressing drama into something morbidly macabre. It's one of those films where you've really gotten to be in the right mood to watch it. Enough said. But let's move on. 1979, a TV movie called Salem's Lot petrified a whole generation. And for my money, this one contains the scariest looking vampire ever put onto screen. Sadly though, I think time hasn't been too kind to it. It seems to stall in a couple of places and those pacing issues like really ruin its rewatchability for me. So I might give it another go in a few years. I'm sure I'll be back, but yeah, I'm not in a rush to revisit it. But only Drew Barrymore can beat that one, right? Yep. Next up, it is Cat's Eye. And I found this one really boring as a kid, so I never re-rented it. And then I saw it on TV around a decade ago, and I cared even less about it. Today, though, I think it's beginning to grow on me. The first story of this anthology is all right, but the second story with the mob boss and the wager to walk around a skyscraper, that's my actual stuff of nightmares. The third one, well, as I said, it's got Drew Barrymore in it and she's in this one properly. She's dotted about the film otherwise, though. Uh, and it's a supernatural one and the cat was also great in it. I'm going to stop talking about cats. I don't actually like cats, but they seem to get away with it with Stephen King. Uh, it's good fun all round that one. That was Cat's Eye. And so now we're at the end of this second batch of also-rans. 
Maximum Overdrive is the movie that I have chosen here. And yeah, boy, we are in for a fantastic returning guest here. It's only Brad Hansen, the film critic. And now he's also a fellow podcaster. And I was stoked that someone actually chose Maximum Overdrive to chat about. And not only that, but I feel that it was a blessing that it was actually Brad that went for it. So here's the letterbox synopsis. And then we're going to go into the trailer and then the chat. When a comet passes close to Earth, machines all over the world come alive and they go on homicidal rampages. A group of people in a desolate truck stop, they're held hostage by a gang of homicidal 18-wheelers. The frightened people set out to defeat the killer machines or be killed by them. The time has come for maximum terror. The time has come. For maximum king. You're going to get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Rated R. Starts Friday, July 25th at theaters everywhere. Brad, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. It's been a while. It has been a while, and the last time we spoke, I was talking to you about, oh man, I would so love to hear your voice on your own podcast, and you said, yeah, it's not going to happen. And then, lo and behold, it's it's happened, it's begun, season one done, tell me all about X-Rental. Uh, X-Rental was an idea that my friend Ash, who I do the podcast with, came to me, and he said, he, he, he you know, he came out with his pitch deck, and he said, listen... I want to sort of, you know, in, encapsulate the video shop experience of the 90s, you know, going into Blockbusters or your local mom and pop store and look at 90s movies and look at 90s video culture, especially in the advent of what's been happening societally with mu- movies in the last few years, moving over to streaming, disappearing off the face of planet, being re-edited, being re off for tax purposes and kind of celebrating the heyday of, of physical media and, and celebrating it in that regard. More importantly, he also said he'd do all the work, and that really, really <laughs> sold it to me. So if it wasn't for Ash doing all the editing, which I definitely didn't want to do, we wouldn't have it. But we do have it. Season one's done. It went all right. Maybe there'll be a season two. We'll see. I hope so. You're a man of your word, because you said last time you said, like, I'd love to do one, but it's just all that faff that you do, Paul. I don't want to do any of that stuff. True to your word, man. And I'll tell you what, I my favourite one was the ghost one. No one talks about that film within the community that I'm in. And like it was great to hear like honest opinions about things like that. That's that's the thing I loved about your podcast was you don't bullshit. You're not like a, got paid ads and all that stuff oh, going God, on. So you no, just no, no, straight no, no one would love it. No one would pay us to do this. I mean, Ghost was an, an interesting one because I'd never seen it. Um, obviously I'd societally been aware of Ghost and understood what Ghost was but never had seen it and the um, the audience voted for it in in their tens uh, and you know it was it was a fun experience what, what I like about x Rental is that I get to talk about things that are not necessarily horror and I've got opinions on I've got terrible opinions on all genres of movies I just so happen to be more adept or given more opportunity to speak about the horror stuff. So it was nice to talk about things like Titanic and things like that, just that were these massive cultural touchstones in the 90s and spew my bad takes over it. Well, 90s stuff never really gets the look in when you've got like the the 70s, the 80s. It's always like chatting about them. Yeah, There's whole genres of podcasts just 
focusing on that. And like the nineties just don't really get a look. Overlooked. Man. It's a great idea. I love it. It's all Ash's idea. So kudos credit where credit's due. He came to me cap in hand. And I said, okay, boy, if you're prepared to do all the work, I will do it. Make me rich. <laughs> oh dear. That hasn't worked so far, but yeah, we, 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 we move. So today you're actually the very last guest that I've got on here uh, to speak with me about the Stephen King phenomenon that is Stephen King. And I had, uh, who do I have on? I had Neil Marshall on last night. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> My good friend, Neil. Yeah. We were talking about Christine. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. So like uh, of all the, the ones he could choose from, he chose Christine and it was a good chat, but I want to get your take on Neil Marshall just for this bit, because you love Giallo, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about it a lot. Um, and your favourite directors deal with Giallo. Mm-hmm. His new movie uh, is going to be a Giallo called Compulsion. What do, you, what do you think about this? Is it now? Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what do I think about Neil Marshall doing a Giallo? Now... It's the, the gamble here is will he listen to just his section when this comes out, or will he listen to the entire thing? Um that is that's the first <laughs> question. I would hey, say if my interview's in a bag, it's all right. Yeah, but my head is still <laughs> on the block. Um if it was 2003 Neil Marshall, I'd be over the moon. It's not 2003 Neil Marshall now making this, and unfortunately. Some of his more recent output hasn't I've not personally been a fan of. Um, but you know, he's never tried one of these before. Maybe this'll be the catalyst of that kind of reinvigorates his career. Obviously, he's been doing great stuff with Game of Thrones and things like that, and some of the TV work he's been doing, but from a uh a cinematic standpoint, there's been a slight dip in quality. But the the beautiful thing with Jarlos is they don't even have to make sense, really. You can just have someone, just loads of like red herrings for 90 minutes and then be like, oh, it was them, by the way. And then you can get away with it. So, sure, go for it, Neil. I'll wa- I mean, I'll watch it. That, that the, Here's the thing. like, It's much like Stephen King. Was, uh, you'll get disappointed time and time and time again, but I'll always go and watch the new Stephen King. And I'll do that with Neil Marshall. Like, I'm so excited. Like He filmed this in Italy, and when he was there, he realised that what he was filming had touchstones of Giallo. So... He's like gone back and he's watched a ton of Jarlos and then he's put all that influence into finishing off his film. So it's excited me just to hear him talking about it. I'm I'm game. So what you're telling me is that he didn't set out to make a Jarlo, filmed mm-hmm. it and then realized it might be a Jarlo and has sort of retrofitted it into the Jarlo. Yeah, framework. from what he was saying, it started off as a slasher. Right. And then uh, he could he when he was out there, he got so inspired by like the the whole Pizza, culture pasta you know those sort of things <laughs> that'll do it <laughs> that'll do it <laughs> i know i'm underselling it now and making things worse already but hey we're game um yeah, yeah. compulsion coming soon okay right <laughs> here we go stephen king what's your yes. history with him you know what he's not i would say you know there are there are certain people my co-host and on next one who i would say are like these like avid fans read every book, watch every iteration, remake, repurposing, retooling of all the things. I've never had a very deep spiritual connection to Mr. King. Um, I've never read any of his books. That's mainly because I can't read. Um, 
But if he ever releases a picture book, I'll be sure to put it on top of the reading list as soon as I get through the Peppa Pigs. But I like his stuff. Like I like the film adaptations of the things that, you know, and I love the concept of him. This kind of like, um, especially in the 70s and 80s, this kind of like nightmare, the Garth Marenghi, but like, <laughs> but real. <laughs> like, I like the idea of, of even with Dean Koontz and, and Clive Barker and these other horror authors, I love the idea of these, you know, dream weavers, you know, making yeah. all, all this stuff that used to like, you know, people would be terrified and of these paperback books, which to me, I don't know how you could be scared of a book, just close it and it's done. <laughs> it's done. Um, but, you know, I, I like the stories he he that I've seen translated into screen. Unfortunately, I'm a Philistine and I don't know how to read. What about audio books? You ever been tempted? I don't listen to stuff either, really. <laughs> You know, I, I avidly don't listen to podcasts, for example. Yeah. So, no, I've never been tempted. I'd rather just watch a film. You know me. There's only so much time in the day where you can fit these films in. When I hit the fourth one, I'm always thinking, I don't need to watch a fourth film today. And yet, I just want to squeeze that in sometimes. So I get it. You've got to get the numbers up, baby. Where, yeah. you at this, where are you at this year? 720 i'm I'm normally oh, you're, definitely you're right near me am i i normally hit a thousand by the end and no way this year can i know what no way i think we're i think because you smashed me last year but i think we're on an even keel this year i think of course now when i'm trying to open up letterbox it's going to be slow but <laughs> this is this isn't going to make the podcast i was dick measuring the amount this is of gold that's <laughs> all right that's so uh, we come to Maximum Overdrive, which is the one you've chosen. Um, what's your history with it? Why did you choose it? Oh, because it's the only film that Stephen King directed. So it, you know, you 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 introduced me saying I'm the last person you recorded with, but I'm one of the first you booked. So yeah. First, first book, last recorded. And when you gave me the list, I mean, I think only two things had been taken. So I literally had the pick of the Stephen King kitty litter. Yeah. And I was like, I've got to take Maximum Overdrive just because the opportunities, I've never had a chance to speak about this film on anything else I've ever done on any of the other podcasts and all that sort of stuff. And I fucking love this movie because it's so weird. Um, <laughs> it and it's kind of weird. cheesy, schmaltzy, B-movie, schlocky rubbish. But I have such a deep affinity for it that when the option was there, I was like, I've got to pick Maximum Overdrive. So glad you did. A couple of things. The IMDb... Uh, gives it 5.4 out of 10. Does that surprise you? I think it's quite high myself. I think anyone... The thing is, right, I always look at ratings on this, and especially people that rate on IMDb. Please, Jeez. God. Where have you been? <laughs> Fucking, you still dial it up on 56K. What's going on? <laughs> um, I always sort of judge them as kind of like boomer reviewers, like my <laughs> what my mum and dad would think. And if my mum and dad watched this film, they wouldn't think it made any sense at all. And it was weird and all these decisions. And I don't like what happened on the baseball diamond and all the, these sort of things. So I can <laughs> see why it's low, but it never also it was never going to be high. Because even though I love it, I know it's shit. Like, I know it's bad. Yeah. But I still appreciate it. Oh, I had so much fun re-watching it. And I realised I re-watched re it three years ago and then uh, last night as well. And I have as much fun, even though I know all the beats now. Like, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. There, there's so much I don't like about it. And yet I'll come back to it tomorrow. You know, it's it's one of those weird ones that is just yeah. soothing. 
There's a soothingness to it. There's a, it a, a comfort, a familiarity, because the film doesn't really ask a lot of you as a, a, a participant, because you don't have to get into loads of like myth and law. Literally, a fucking title card comes up and says what's going on. And then we're in <laughs> straight away. And then at the end, it's the end. And then like nothing's changed from the beginning of the end. And that's the beauty of it. You just let the film wash over you and just be like, now, was this a heavy gram day of cocaine he used today? Or like when he filmed this scene, or was it like a light smattering today? Because this is pure cocaine cinema. I've never, this and To Live and Die in LA are the films that I think most typify people that have just been banging lines every single day for the entirety of the shoot. So, yeah, I mean, my next thing to you was like, do the drugs work? Now, last night I was trawling over the net and I found this interview with him done at the same time that this came out. So he was just on the promotion trail of it. And he doesn't look fucked up at all. Uh, he he said that I was naive behind the camera, but then he pulls out a rubber spider and you think, oh, hang on. He's like, he's not with it at this point. And he tries to scare like the interviewer as well and, and things like that. So like he does flip out a little bit here and then, but being around people that are heavily into cocaine for fair fair few years of my life, that he seems pretty normal and to come up with this film i don't know man like do you feel like the drugs were the major contributor here to making this film so shit and yet so great at the same time well i mean it's it's enjoyable for its weird indulgences and and the weird choices and decisions even from the opening cameo of himself honey sugar buns the atm just called me an asshole like it's so weird to start your entire film like that. That is not how films start. No, it's not. A, you don't have title credits that say, "Here's the situation." There's a rear M comet. It's coming past for eight days, uh, and then the next scene is just someone putting their ATM pin in and it's saying, "You are an asshole." Like that's not yep. how a film works. But I love that that's how the film starts. It really sets the tone for like the next hour and a half of bizarre decision making in in this interview he said that like he felt that it was his best adaptation to date okay he said yeah so he understood that it was his technique wasn't the best but all in all out of all the films that had come up to this point this was his best one and then he, in the same breath he called it a moron movie like splash okay I mean, that's where his head's at at the time. Like, he did think he'd done a great, like, first job. And now he, 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 from that interview, he wants to get stuck into more because he's learned a bit of the craft now. He knows what he's doing. But there was no more. Like, why? He famously said, you know, when someone asked him, why have you never made another film? He said, have you seen Maximum Overdrive? Right. Like, that was his response to it. Because the thing is, there are so many greedy, money-hungry producers in the world, and there have been since the 80s, and there certainly are now as well, that would, if Stephen King had the actual indulgence to say, I want to direct a film, he could get it financed fairly easily. Yeah. Given the pedigree and standard of who he is. It's similarly with like Mike Flanagan's money printing press at Netflix and now moving on to Prime, mm-hmm. where he can just do what he wants. Um, so it surprises me that he's never been, has, has gone back in front of the camera, behind the camera again. What I will say is him saying, oh, it's the, the best version, like adaptation of my work 
It's because he's always had a fucking chip on his shoulder about everyone else adapting his work. This is him adapting himself. So if he got pissed off at this, the only person he's got to blame is himself, whereas he can blame Kubrick and he can blame John Carpenter for the the way that the other ones have gone. That's their fault. This was always going to be the most faithful adaptation of Stephen King's work because Stephen King was making it. <laughs> it's so true. Like, But the, the, what I love about it is the various different scenes. Like when I think of it, I close my eyes. I think of these like, key moments i don't think of the film as a like this narrative and like the whole story behind it and everything like i'm not fussed like i love the pov shot of the lawnmower for instance when i think of it i think of that i love the kid getting squished uh by the the, man what a great scene that is like no fucks given i'm just gonna kill this kid straight away Mm. love that and apparently it was cut there was way more splatter that he filmed that like was just chopped down, gutted about that. Yeah, I mean, he was he was coming at this at like the height of the censorship, right? This is where the, the Friday the Thirteenth began cut to ribbons as well. Censors are really cracking down. So yeah, he had this. The blood bag went wrong, and it was supposed to be like a a, a sheet of blood to like show that it'd gone over. Right. But he said it was like this big fucking geezer like popped, <laughs> and King was like, "That is staying in the movie." And censors <laughs> were like, "No, no." It's definitely not. But the thing is, I watched the film this morning, and just before I came on with you, you were talking about plot and narrative. I watched it this morning, yeah. and I had to reread the plot synopsis on Wikipedia before I came on here to remind myself what happened, and I watched it this morning. Uh, says a lot, doesn't it? It says yeah. a lot. I want to talk about Mr. Estevez. I've got an issue with him, right? and I, I didn't realise until yesterday what, what okay. this issue is. And I think it's... I don't want to be too rude because I've been rude already. He's not. He's not listening. Okay. And I bring out the worst in people anyway. So just if you're going to be a cunt, just be a cunt now. Right. Okay. Good. Um, I just think he's like one of the worst actors. Like in no matter what he's been in. And I used to really like this film called Men at Work when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, And I went back to that last year. What? was I thinking as a kid I hated it and Billy the Kid like he played that in Young Guns and things and I remember loving that as a kid but I don't want to go back to that now like seeing him in this I just see him as so vapid I can't see him I I just feel like it's nepotism that's got him the job um how do you feel about him tell me I'm wrong I mean I'm not gonna dispute with you I mean obviously the the best film he's ever made and his best performances in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 with Samuel L. Jackson. That's also a 90s movie, so I might cover that on Experimental going forward. Um, But if you look, you know, at his body of work and, you know, even more so how his body of work has dried up in the last sort of 15, 20 years, he's definitely one of the OG Nepo babies. But the thing is, unfortunately in the industry, everyone's a Nepo baby and a lot of them are untalented Nepo babies. Um, So... You can't really begrudge him because that's just the way. It, I mean, it was a bigger deal in the 80s because there were less Nepo babies because there had been less films. So there were less people oh. to be nepo about. But yeah, no, nah, I mean, I've got, I've, I don't harbour this ill will that you clearly do. Oh, God, um, yeah. I don't want to go back to Repo Man at all. I don't want to ruin my memories I've, of that film. I've never seen Repo Man. It's actually, while I was going through today, I was like, oh, I still haven't watched that. I should check it out. It's a 1984 banger, but I know, right, and it's got been... Big Harry in it as well. <laughs> Dirty Harry, come on! But yeah, I mean, it's 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 on the list, but I mean, the list is as you know, Paul, ever growing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, 
it's such a shame because I feel like anyone in this place would have worked better for me. Um, but then on this interview, I just let it play on. And it mentioned in this next thing that like a bit of lore to the film was that Bruce Springsteen was asked, uh, first of all, like to, to be in it. And then the, the studio just went, no, you can't have Bruce Springsteen. So imagine that. The boss. Um- I mean, it would certainly have a, 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 I mean, it's got a cult following now, but if it had the boss in it, then yes, that would be, I mean, we've also, we'd be remiss to mention while we're on the subject of musicality, the soundtracks entirely performed by Akadaka. My introduction to ACDC was this film. Was it really? Oh my word. Yeah. And it's still my favorite ACDC album to this day, even though it's a comp. Uh, I just love it. Like even the instrumental tracks, Oh, come on. It's vibes, like, isn't it? Proper 80s hair metal vibes. I thought it, I didn't know that it was like for this film. I just thought it was a regular album, Who Made Who. And when I used to listen to it as a kid, I would judge every other album on this. Is it giving me this much fun? Is it banger after banger after banger? No. And like, I just fell in love with this band because of this soundtrack. And when I realised that, oh, my love of horror and my love of, rock and metal are going to join like this this film should be the best film ever made it should be the greatest film ever unfortunately (laughs) the there's a beautiful bread on either side there's a breading of horror and breading of rock and metal but unfortunately in the middle is a shit sandwich uh, which makes no sense. That's one for the box. That's one for the box. Put that on the poster as we say but you know I, I mean, I, we I, like you. I love intersections of of rock and metal crossing over into horror. With you know, I did a podcast entirely on this recently uh, with Ukraine Hackett uh, called What a Scream Podcast. That we did a whole thing about the intersection between metal and horror. And I was like, Do you know, who else would been good doing this, Paul Waller. But unfortunately, it's a it's a, a one and done, and I picked it, mate. So you can't yeah. do metal and horror again. That's fair. It's fair. Like I will have like a massive episode like i've got a list of over a 100 films that are just metal and horror mixed in and uh, obviously you're coming back for that but we can't do green room again no uh, i wouldn't pick green room god no. <laughs> oh god but like that's punk <laughs> yeah sorry, sorry this is for me and also ran within his canon but i also oddly find it as essential i if there was a special bells and whistles blu-ray 4k of this thing i'm down within a heartbeat i would be i don't know i would bite your arm off so yeah like to sum up have we missed stuff do you want to mention something else is there something that you would say to people out there that are umming and ahhing well i think we should talk about the fact that although it shares kind of its dna with like the twilight zone in terms of a what if machine what evil he is he is he has latched on because you know he's he is an intelligent great writer who writes great horror and writes Mm -hmm. evocative horror and you know he is slightly ahead of the time i mean i'm not saying he's the first person to have machines turning against us i mean we've already had terminator at this point but to the way that he kind of frames the film and our like reliance of technology and and shining a spotlight on how much in 1986 we'll call it um technology was surrounding us at some simple gas station let alone your house 
and all the sort of perils and traps of if all these electronic uh, right now i'm looking at like 20 things in this room that could fucking kill me uh there's a shark vacuum cleaner that we just picked up that definitely looks very evil and menacing in the corner <laughs> and i you know in in the 80s i think there's a scary the, the thing is there's never a scary version of this because it's too preposterous like killer vending machines smashing sodas into heads great concept great idea great visual not intrinsically scary yeah i'm not, I'm not gonna then go and get a can of dr pepper and be like flinching in case it fires out at me at 100 miles an hour so it, it's a hokey idea but there is some meat of truth in there that i think is interesting do you agree 100 like stephen king is always like uh as soon as it enters the zeitgeist he seems to have a novel already done ready for for whatever it is to go i remember the launch of cell like the book not the yeah, film yeah. not the film yeah i was just like oh wow this this is going to be really interesting like it's taking the themes of maximum overdrive and like accelerating it into to where we are now and yeah. it did and like i remember the beginning of the film i was so excited what a cast that film's got i'm like yeah i'm down and like Fresh. i remember ugh, mate i was so disappointed the ending of the book absolute shit and it, i think that's where the whole stephen king can't finish a book thing come from with cell like that's when it really started picking up pace but the story itself, like, it's loaded, tons of thinking points. But again, this one, great ideas. And again, it just doesn't quite hold up as a film for what he's trying to say. This is more of a get your, get the lads round, have beers, have a pizza. Like, let, let's move on to something a bit later on, even more trashy. Yeah, because the thing is, there is still a level of restraint to this film, despite the uh, cocaine divergences, as we're calling them. Once again, many thanks to Brad Hansen there for coming back onto the show. But now, Maximum Overdrive has actually put the end to part two of the also rounds. They're now being put to bed. I feel like it's time that we should move on.